Welcome to the Hop Button. First, a word from our sponsors. Academy Award nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, Licorice Pizza is the story of Alana Kane and Gary Valentine growing up, running around, and falling in love in the San Fernando Valley, 1973. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, the film tracks the treacherous navigation of first love. Empire says Licorice Pizza is Paul Thomas Anderson operating at full capacity, a master at work. Now available to watch in theaters and on digital. And now, DP30. If I may, I've got uh, my my wife's dog is barking around the corner. We'll let him out, so we'll stop barking. I'll be right back. Okay, sounds good. Today's guest is John Spates, Oscar-nominated screenwriter of Dune and currently working on the screenplay for Dune 2, which starts shooting in July. How are you? I'm well. Are, are you enjoying... I assume you're very hard at work. I gather the movie is shooting in July. That's right. So are you done or are you under pressure to continue? Uh, oh, you're never done. You're never done until until they send the film off to theaters and sometimes not even then. <laughs> so are you, I mean, are you an on-set writer? Do you come on set and spend time or is that a different animal? I visited production on part one of Dune. Mm-hmm. Um, but was not much on set uh, because it's hard to work on set. I was mostly shacked up at a hotel down the road writing my little tail off. Um, right. So I had the experience of, uh, I went three times, I guess, to Budapest while they were shooting or in prep and almost never left the hotel. Looking out <laughs> at this gorgeous river and these palaces and cathedrals up on the hills um, and eating room service and writing and writing and writing the whole time. So I did spend some time on set and I got to see those beautiful, massive sets uh, on which the film was shot. Um, but yeah, even then, most of the time when I was in Budapest, I was closeted with my laptop and getting it done. So was it, I'm gonna take a couple trips to the, I'm gonna make a couple trips to the set during this production and, and you know, they need you to do stuff or was it, oh my God, we need you to fix section three? <laughs> we went into shooting part one with a pretty strong script. And so there were no crises of that kind. Uh, it was more polishing and trying to figure out how to solve certain problems of storytelling elegantly. Um, so, yeah, there were places where we were trying to bring the audience aboard emotionally at the top of the movie in a place where the structure of Dune as a novel plays tricks that we as a film can't play. Mm. So when Dune starts, you jump right into the action and you're having the Reverend Mother roll in and administer the test of the Gong Jabbar and young Paul is facing a life or death trial in the middle of the night. And you're thrown into midstream, but in the novel, you can hear everyone thinking the entire time. And those internal monologues fill in what you don't know about who everybody is and what the background context of these events is. And so you learn about House Atreides and how they're being sent to another world and the way the father stands with the emperor and the way the mother stands with the Bene Gesserit order and all of these world building things are laid in um, by these silent trains of thought that in film you can't access. So we had to invent some new scenes at the top of the movie. Um, to front load a little bit of the emotional bonding and orientation that happens inside people's heads in the novel. 
and, and that was kind of a late realization. So we adjusted the the some of the some of the work being done by later scenes was moved to new scenes at the top of the movie. Well, one of the things that I think is so effective about the script is that it's it feels somewhat minimalist, and you guys managed to do all this exposition without a ton of jabber jabber jabber. Mm -hmm. Pretty unusual. It was a discipline from the beginning and part out of necessity because there is so much world building in Dune. There's so much exposition you could do. You could literally fill the runtime of a long movie just with the universe rules and never get around to the people and their problems to the story. Um, so we knew we had to take a minimalist approach to exposition. And more than that, Dune at its best feels profound, feels mystical. And mystery flourishes in silences and in open questions. It is better to do a little implication and a little poetic expression than to try to explain everything to death, to give people the rules of how things work here. And so allowing mystery to remain, allowing questions to be only partially answered also felt part of being true to the book which is at its best a mystical exploration. So when did you get involved with the project in the first part? Or you were the originator or are you second on or third on or 15th on or? I was not first. Uh, Eric Roth was first on when Denis decided he wanted to write the movie. He reached out to Eric because he loved his writing. And Eric wrote two monumental drafts. I think they ran quite long um, over some time working with Denis. And, and then Denis, took those scripts into his own hands and did some writing and some editing on his own and produced a tight 119 page script uh, that was full of great stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but they felt like it still was not all the way there. And I was called in at that point. And the script I saw was Denise's edit of prior material by Mr. Roth. <laughs> and, um, and it showed me what Denise wanted. Uh, Were you a Dune person before you I started? Was. I was. Like Denis, I read the book at 12 or 13 and fell in love with it. I think I reread it every summer vacation for many years of my childhood and was surprised when I took it up for this adaptation to realize how much of it I knew by heart. It was <laughs> enough to read the first line or two of a scene and my brain would just reel off the rest of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, but that meant I could jump in very quickly and get up to speed. Um, and at that point, they knew they wanted to make the movie, but they felt they needed to get the script to a certain stage to say yes, for sure. So they needed me to do it quickly. So I sat down with the book and tore it to pieces with a red pen and dog-eared pages and took it apart. And then I did a clean adaptation of the novel into screenplay form in five, six weeks time, very quickly. Um, and not the novel, but the first half of the novel, because Denis had decided from the outset that it was going to take two films to tell this story very wise. And we're so, still at two, right? That's right. Because <laughs> there was conversation that Denis was going to push for three. Well, but, uh, when he talks about maybe doing a trilogy, I think he's imagining reaching out to Dune Messiah, the next novel, and folding that material in as well. And he still thinks about it. Um, so then I sat my adaptation down beside the Villeneuve Roth draft and just comb through them together to see how they'd approach the structure differently and what was sort of the best of each one. And in particular, every place where Denis was clearly filmmaking on the page and could see things, uh, was seeing a movie on the screen, 
all of that stuff I put into the draft and sort of combine amalgamated the two uh, to make a hybrid draft. And that's what we went forward with. That was enough to get the movie happily into greenlight territory. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Denis was whizzing down the road into pre-production. And, but he has still had further refinements he wanted to make on the script. And that's when he and I entered a kind of episodic and intense collaboration where I would go wherever he was, which was Montreal, where he's based in the beginning, and then Budapest when he moved there. And I'd shack up at a hotel down the road from him in some suite. And in the morning, he'd roll in and we'd sit down in the living room and start talking story. And we'd break for lunch and go back to it and talk nothing but work until two or three in the afternoon. And then he'd leave to go take 17 meetings as a director. And I would start writing. And at midnight, I'd send him what I have and go to bed. And at nine o'clock in the morning, he'd walk back in, we'd do it again. And we did that every day for seven to 10 days. And it was exhausting. But because we were in constant communication, it removed that element of guesswork and trying to intuit your director's intent that's so often a part of screenwriting. Um, And we were able to come out with a complete revision of the script from end to end, director approved, um, in a week or just over a week each time. So he is a writer. Obviously, Eric is a writer. You're a writer. Is is he, is he, once you started with his partial draft, was it like an immediate, okay, we're going to, now it's yours and don't worry about what I did as opposed to, I knew you were worrying about it in terms of like what he wanted and what he was targeting and so forth. But was it, did he kind of just hand over the writing apparatus to you at that point? Yeah, he was very generous actually, because uh, it's very, it's a very delicate matter to rewrite your director. Yes. Um, it's a delicate matter to rewrite anyone, but usually that person is not in the room. Um, and usually that's not a deal anymore. Yes. And usually that person can't fire you. Um, so rewriting somebody who is the governing uh, vision for the project mm-hmm. and someone who's also king or queen uh, is a delicate matter. Um, so I was delicate about it, but he put me at ease on that front. And he said, John, I need you to follow your instinct. Uh, your instincts are why I brought you here. So I want you to pretend there's nothing special about the draft you're working on. And I want you to write the way your artistic voice says will be best. And then we'll talk. Uh, but it was very important to him to have me take a crack at it uh, according to my own muse and not, you know, like a nervous child trying to guess what mom or dad wants yeah. all the way through. Um, so he gave me that freedom and it made a huge difference. Uh, and then after that, we entered into a dialogue um, in which, you know, again, he was generous and humble and you know made us equal partners in the conversation and subsequently he did more script work on his own he was also a writer again in the future uh, eric roth came back for a bit at the end and did a little more scene work we were all kind of right rewriting each other by the final fo- polishing phases of of the film so you've worked with a bunch of directors who are very hands-on very uh-huh. layered in this regard in terms of script and everything else is that your specialty? Is that something you're particularly good at? Or is it just a kind of a circumstance of the things you've fallen into? Um, I think I am good at just the, the grown-up skill of taking notes, collaborating, and just recognizing the facts on the ground in terms of the power structure of any given job. And it's different every time. Um, when you're a screenwriter, everybody between you and the money is to some extent your boss. 
And sometimes there's a bunch of them and some of them matter more than others. And one of the pieces of real politic that makes you a good screenwriter is figuring out like where your real boss is uh, on any given job. And even that can change on the fly and the, the, the answer can change. Yeah. So I think I'm good at that bit of politics and the, the emotional bit of just accepting um, how much power I do and don't have on any given job. But apart from that, no, I don't think that, you know, I collaborating or collaborating with a director is a gift. It's really about the storytelling. Did you come into the screenwriting business with that skill and an idea, notion of what it would, that you were getting yourself into? Well, I came into it late. And so in that way, I think I had the benefit of simply having had a career already. I was in my 30s when I wrote and sold my first script. And so I had been a boss at companies. I had been an underling at a bunch of companies. Um, I had learned to get along and just sort of knew what it was to have a job and, you know, understood who was buttering my bread, where the check came from, how to do a job. I think a lot of people break into screenwriting um, who have always known they wanted to do it. Um, and so for many people, they may never have worked a job in their lives. And then suddenly they're in a power structure and people want to change their darling that they just made. And it can be a process learning how to suffer that gracefully. That's why um, I got out. <laughs> I, I had a very brief screenwriting career. And I just, after a couple of movies where it was rewritten on the fly a lot and, you know, things were changed that were pretty dramatically changed. I just like, why am I here? What am I doing? That's tough. And yeah. it's the nature of the game. We're well compensated for it. And of course, you always know that there's a thousand people right behind you who'd kill for your job. Um, but yeah, there are parts of it that are inevitably not easy. Um, but at the same time, there's a Zen to it, to understanding that you're here to interpret a director's vision. And you have to be guided by what the inner moviegoer in you would like to see. We all munch our own popcorn. And in the end, that's what gets us through. Like, what movie do you want to see? What's going to thrill you in the seat? Um, but marrying that sensibility with an attempt to kind of intuit the desires of the director making the film, I mean, I really enjoy that process, actually. Mm. Have you had directors change on you ever? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've had directors come and go in the middle of a thing. Yeah. Um, I worked on a project that had a director attached, and then that director got cut loose, and another person was elevated to that position, and I managed to stay in the seat and kept writing. So it can happen. It doesn't happen often. <laughs> and you, you do seem like you, a, a significant percentage for a screenwriter of movies you've worked on, you do get credit for. That's a special skill. <laughs> See, yeah, nothing I've worked on has gotten made without my name on it. That's pretty unusual. Yet. A bunch of things have gotten made, have not gotten made. Right. Certainly the lion's share of the writing I've done is unproduced scripts. That's... yeah standard for screenwriters everywhere i think i haven't counted but if i had to guess i've i've written four or five for everyone i've gotten made yeah so in every you know it, it seems like every 10 years every 15 years whatever that group is there are certain screenwriters that end up getting credit on everything and some of the or most of the things they do that get made and then some people just almost never do <laughs> yeah i knew a guy who made a good living as a screenwriter for 20 years um and he never got a movie made. Yeah. Um, but he worked constantly and was well regarded. And you know, nothing ever went, never, never produced. Um, but he was a working screenwriter for 20 years with a nice big house, and it was a life. 
Well, Carrie Fisher, I think, has three credits. And she was one of the busiest screenwriters for 20 years. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that was intentional on her part. I don't think she wanted the credit, but it was it's an interesting conundrum. Yeah, well, there's the in screenwriting, there's the script doctoring um, yeah. phase or production rewrites. Um, and that's generally work done at a very high weekly rate at a breakneck pace for a movie that desperately needs a script fixed, usually because it's either in production or about to go. And they need ace work fast. And those people expect to own you completely any hour of the night and have the complete output of your brain. I've done some of that work. And the general understanding in that job is that you're not gonna get credit for this work, right? Uh, but you are paid lavishly well and you get to work on something that's gonna be a movie, which is kind of fun. You can maybe hear your dialogue spoken later. <laughs> um, yeah, the credit game, the screenwriting game in general is a funny way of, of writing. Um, yeah. But if you love movies, there's nothing quite like it. So you knew going into production on Dune, on the first movie, that you where, where the line was gonna be, okay, we're gonna stop the story here and we're not gonna try to make it into a complete singular thing. We're kind of gonna leave you feeling like you want more. There yeah. were discussions, we knew it was gonna be two films from the beginning. Denis made that decision at the outset. Um, the Warners apparently did not. <laughs> no, they knew it was gonna be two movies. Um, Denis would have loved to shoot them both at once to take the big gamble. Right. Um, but that's asking a studio to pony up a great many millions for an untested proposition. So I'm not surprised. Um, that they wanted to go in a more conventional pace. Um, but he always knew he was going to make two Dune movies. Uh, the trick became precisely where to make the break. And there is a kind of mirage in the novel of the right place, because there's a place where there's a time jump in the story. And several years go by, and then you pick up the course of events again. And since a couple of years are going to go by between any two movies, that's like a pretty good place to stop. Right. Um, but, but in practice, it would have meant going to the end point of the film we shot, the film as it is now, and then carrying on into the desert and getting to know the Fremen and finding a place among them. Um, and it would have been kind of the beginning of a new story that they would then not tell you. Right. And in particular, because the great tragedy of House Atreides as portrayed in the first film, hits so hard um, when rendered with Denise filmmaking skill and with the performances of these actors who are so extraordinary. I mean, it's just heart-wrenching for me, even now knowing how it ends to watch every time. And there's a way in which it almost dishonored that story at mm. the end of that to then sort of start something new and move away. I think we needed to live in the resonance of all that was lost in the tragedy of it. Um, and make the ending of the film really about Paul's response to that tragedy, to his loss, um, and to the choice he was going to make, what his reaction would be. Um, Which is desert power, I guess. Uh, it is desert power. It is the choice to stay. Yeah. Um, and the choice to follow his father's path and continue what has been begun. Which is also, to a certain extent, a choice to follow the dreams that he's been having for many years of a future in the desert. So how much of the, this part of the book do you, did you not get to include? That you, is there stuff that you're going, oh, God, I wish I could have shoved this in or shoved that in? Yes, many things. Uh, there are scenes I love that uh, never even made it into the script 
uh, or scenes that made it into early drafts but were cut before we were even done with later drafts. There's a great banquet scene in the novel, uh, mm -hmm. which is this beautiful interplay of ideas and drives deep into both interesting character details and the philosophies that are at war in this world and kind of trying to determine the shape of the future. Um, I love that dinner scene and we wrote it and it was static. Mm -hmm. And I rewrote it as a cocktail mingler. So people are flirting and on their feet and on the move. And it was still too much talking. Um, and part of the problem there is that at that time in the movie, the Atreides are in a place of desperation and paranoia. They are the stewards of a new world, but that world is filled with spies and agents provocateurs who are arrayed against them. Um, they have been undermined and sabotaged at every turn, and they're not sure they're going to make it through. They're not sure who their friends are and who they can trust. And in that context, they have everybody over for drinks. And in the space of Dune, a very interior novel, we're hearing everybody's thoughts throughout this evening as they measure each other and perceive enemies and guess at their friendships and worry about the choices that each other will make. Um, they're strategizing all the time. And of course, up on the surface, they're making small talk and they're having philosophical, philosophical arguments. Mm -hmm. The trick is that there's not really a cinematic way to render that interior monologue right. that makes the scene work. And when you shoot it, it's just the small talk. And it's too light for that point in the film. And there was no version of it that worked. In the end, we dispensed with it despite my great love for it. There's other stuff we wrote and shot that just didn't find its way into the film, which is the nature of filmmaking generally. Uh, for example, there's beautiful work between the two mentats, Peter DeVries and Thufir Hawat, having a bit of a chess match as Houses Harkin and Atreides clash mm. on Arrakis. And you know, there's, there's not tons of material, but there's some really lovely scenes that both those gentlemen did uh, about the conflict between them, a kind of resolution at the end and that subplot in the end didn't make the movie because even at our very economical approach and even at tackling only half the novel, there was still far too much material to make it in. Um, particularly when you're making a lyrical film that dwells on images and lets cinema do the talking, yeah. um, a, a bunch of conversational scenes had to fall by the wayside. Uh, we even wrote a scene where Gurney Halleck, the troubadour warrior, plays his balisette and sings, which is kind of a really important part of the novel for fans mm -hmm. uh, and a very difficult bit to render on film. And so we had a whole passage right in the middle of the film before the Harkonnens attacked, uh, where Gurney began playing for the soldiers in the barracks and his song carried on over a series of scenes as House Atreides goes to bed mm -hmm. uh, before the Harkonnen attack. And Josh sang it, they shot it. Uh, I wrote a little lyric based on a Frank Herbert poem, um, and I loved it. And I think it's right that it's not in the movie because mm -hmm. it slowed things down too much. The tension and pace worked better without it. That's always the way, you kill darlings. A Henry V beat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when, in terms of Denny making the movie, is it, do you get surprised by the visual coming to life of your words or are you seeing so many you know uh, so many things preparing for it that you kind of really know everything that's coming 
There's some of both. Um, along the way, especially once you're in prep, there's concept art flowing out. Um, and I got to be in that beautiful interplay, which I've loved throughout my career of getting a nice creative loop with concept artists where they show you the art they've done so far. And so you write to that art, mm. but then in writing to that art, you might give them an idea about that space they hadn't had before. And then the concept art changes to incorporate stuff you wrote. Um, and when a film is in prep, you get to have that dialogue between right. the de departments, which I just adore. <laughs> um, so there was some of that, but there were other things I never saw art for, things I never saw visualized until I sat in a theater and watched a screening for the first time. And what was that like for you? Oh, it was thrilling. I mean, Denis is such a visualist. He's got such a strong uh, aesthetic and fingerprint mm -hmm. uh, that you can see running through his films. It's amazing to see the world of Arrakis and of the great houses interpreted through his lens. Uh, amazing and you know amazing to see moments uh, that had only existed in my imagination realized by another imagination or really a, a whole army of imaginations because of course you're seeing the work of so many artists in so many departments it's thrilling what's interesting because on on uh, dr strange i one of the first reactions i had to the movie was i can't imagine reading this script and then knowing what this movie was going to be it's so visually beyond in some other, you know, it's like there's so much going on, the density of it. And yet it's so tied to that screenplay being solid. It seems like a, a similar kind of situation. Yeah. The, the, that, well, that's definitely a place where there was a feedback loop between the storytellers and the visual artists. And of course, at the very center of that was Scott Derrickson, who had a very clear vision of which way he wanted to go. And the idea, you know, the two things that he brought to Dr. Strange, very strongly as a director, are one, a determination to embrace um, the Ditko of it all, the early comic art of psychedelia that uh, was a visual language for representing other dimensions that you mm -hmm. could travel to magically. But also the, the fractal language of broken physics that the antagonists in Dr. Strange um, used to attack him. They kind of have a, a new magic that breaks the world up into fractal repeating patterns. Um, and that vernacular was his. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a thing you tease into existence. You know, he'll go find art reference and concept art and bring that to concept artists and they'll generate and iterate with him until he gets where he's going. Um, my piece of that was formative and was kind of about using the language of cinema as a kind of form of magic, meaning that, you know, imagine you get to go to a Dutch angle in a shot, but you're actually shifting gravity and things move, or you do a dolly zoom and you telescope a distance, but you're actually telescoping a distance and that becomes um, a way of attack or defense. Um, so I got to play in those early conversations. It was really about that. And then he added the fractal dimension to that. Um, in which surfaces would split and multiply uh, kaleidoscopically, which is a thing that visually we'd never seen before. Yeah. You seem to be fearless. I mean, you're taking on projects that some of, most of which actually have had some sort of history, um, some of success and some of failure. <laughs> and is that, is, do, is that a challenge you want or is it just the material and the perception of the person you're working with and all of that that brings you to them? 
it's all about great stories and stories that have fantastic dramatic bones. Um, there are books I like that I don't know how to make into movies. And those scare me because I'm not sure they have the armature in them that a movie requires. But I wasn't afraid of Dune, despite a certain kind of urban legend about its unbreakable qualities. I've never seen it as an unadaptable film. And in fairness, uh, you know, the two great adaptations that people like to talk about, Jodorowsky and, and Lynch, those are both tremendous filmmakers uh, who did not previously know Dune and were not especially fans of Dune. They were guys who were riding the wave of a studio's desire to make Dune and then injecting their own imaginations into that space and doing incredible creative work. And, you know, Jodorowsky's unmade film and Lynch's made film uh, have many lovers and adherents because they're filled with the talented filmmaking of their artists, even if they are kind of incomplete or noble failures. Uh, they're full of great art. Um, but they were not the work of people trying to faithfully make Dune the book. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at Dune the book, I see great bones. It's ready to be a movie or a couple of movies. I, I, if, if I were asked to make Dune in one film, I'd be afraid because I don't think it fits. Uh, but in two movies... Which I think Lynch proved. I think that's right. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, Peter Jackson, when Lord of the Rings came up, that was the fear there also. Obviously, it worked out pretty well for them, splitting it into three. But, um, you know, Harvey originally wanted them to make one movie, which impossible. was impossible. Yeah. But even like, I mean, The Mummy, obviously another, I mean, you were, I guess you weren't the final screenwriter on that. But you Not were by a long shot, but I was first. You were first. <laughs> but that's just that's you know taking on something that's part of the culture. And and yes. and now apparently you're gonna do Van Helsing, which the movie is kind of this weird mixture of success and flop. Right. It's got <laughs> and, a complicated history. And does it and is that will you be creating a new set of bones for that? Is that your place in that ultimately as you start through that project? No, I did a rewrite, uh, uh not a rewrite, I wrote of Van Helsing. I, that was a co-write actually with Eric Heiserer, Oscar-nominated screenwriter of Arrival. Right. Um, and so the only thing I've co-written uh, until just this past year um, in my career, I'd had a great time with Eric, who's a friend. And we wrote a script that we both uh, consider one of our favorites to this day. Um, <laughs> But that script did not leap into production as things would have it. And I don't know to what extent its DNA will live on in upcoming Van Helsings. There's, there's been a, it's a public domain character from a public domain book. Right. Uh, so there's at any given time, a Van Helsing project in development somewhere. So I guess um, Universal has a particular feeling that it's theirs in some way. Well, yeah, they certainly have a, uh, a stable of rights around those classic universal monster movies yeah. and how, how the lawyers determine where the boundaries of that universe lies. I don't know. Uh, but yes, of course, uh, Dracula on film uh, is one of their legacy projects. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure they will be bringing a Van Helsing to the screen, but I don't know whether it will have, any, I don't know whether it will have any of our DNA in it. Mm. So, I mean, do you, you've done things that are not genre, but it does seem like you're in the genre world. Do you ever have the urge to just make a courtroom drama or something a little simpler or? Oh yes, all the time. I have projects in my notebook, which I won't be talking about to the public, 
that are small historical dramas that are little contemporary pieces. All I really need is an idea I fall in love with at the heart of a story. Um, so while I, I know there's been a consistently large amount of space travel and magic in things I've written, I in no way feel married to that space. And in a funny way, screenwriting has been a return to that. I grew up a kid reading sword and sorcery and fantasy and sci-fi as fast as I could get it. You know, sci-fi, short story anthologies, I would just devour. Um, but as I came out of high school and into college, I sort of stopped reading all that stuff. And I pivoted more toward literary fiction. And I set my sights, what felt a little higher at the time, I was going to go write, you know, serious novels for serious readers. And that was my aspiration for many years until I ended up having a little production company with a friend of mine. And we did multimedia and documentary for museums. And for the first time I held a camera, I edited video, I sort of explored the vernacular of film. And suddenly I knew like, oh, you, you can tell stories here. I'm gonna tell stories here. Um, there's a better living in it. And I love this space. I love the collaborative quality of it. Um, and so I, my heart pivoted to screenwriting and then I had to sort of turn to my notebook and say, all right, what among the stories I wanna tell is ready to be a movie. Mm. And the big unique one that jumped out at me just happened to be a big sci-fi epic. And so I wrote a script called Shadow 19 uh, and it sold and I moved to Hollywood and was off and running. And that, that thing was set up at Warner Brothers for a while with uh, Keanu Reeves attached and we never quite got it made, but it was the beginning of my career. And you sort of tend to follow in the vein you begin in as a screenwriter. You know, people hire you for what they know. And so I became a sci-fi guy and I was very happy there. I spent my entire youth preparing for it. Uh, but in a way- <laughs> Little did you know. Exactly. But in a way it was a reunion for me and um, non-genre story spaces feel equally mine to me. So what's your relationship with the movie? Cause you, as I say, you've gotten a credit for a lot of movies it, relatively in a short period of time. What is your relationship to the movies when they come out? I mean, obviously you like them more, you like them less or whatever, but do you, are you waiting to see what the box office is? Are you concerned with that at all? Are you oh, the critical response I mean, and all that? It's always, I mean, everything good is good. It's great if your movie does really well. Um, you'll get more residuals and people get hired more often and you can feel good about that. Mm -hmm. um, it's great if the critics love your work because then you get complimented and you get to feel good about yourself. Um, but the funniest thing about all of that sort of theatrical performance stuff and audience reception stuff for a screenwriter is that because you're on first, by the time a movie gets made and comes out in the theaters, you are invariably in the throes of the next project or the one after that. You're, the thing that just got made or just came out is two, three movies ago. Right. Uh, from your perspective, and you're probably up to your eyeballs in deadlines and writer stress about the story problems you're trying to start solve today. And you've been working hard to fall in love with whatever you're trying to bring into existence next. So the funny quality of um, movies coming out, or even as I'm experiencing now for really the first time, um, awards consideration, mm. is that it's at such a remove chronologically from the work that you did. You know, I started writing Dune years ago and even at a fairly rapid pace or a couple of years ago, you know, that movie got written, rewritten, made out 
um, so much has happened since. Um, so there's a funny feeling of return associated with it uh, to think about you know, a movie earning rewards or earning accolades or earning box office dollars. Uh, it's going back to somebody you dated a while ago <laughs> when you're dating somebody new now. Well, let me let me turn that question around then. <laughs> when it flops, because <laughs> I know good is good. Is bad bad or is it you're on to something else and you're already dating another girl? Again, both things are true. Um, we writers are sensitive souls. Uh, we have soft hearts and everything goes in. So yeah, when a movie tanks in any way, when it underperforms at the box office or when critics have a go at it, um, we internalize that. You try not to, but you do. Um, but the armor you have is that usually by that time, you're well into something else. Yeah. Um, and even if you're a beginning writer who is not doing jobs back to back, I would strongly encourage every young writer to live as if you were, meaning that the minute something's off your plate and out of your control, you pull out that notebook and you either dig out one of those ideas or start inventing a new one um, and fall in love with the next thing as fast as you can go. Uh, it serves you in no way to linger, hopefully, waiting to be loved for something right. you're done working on. Has criticism ever helped you? Have you ever read something going, oh yeah, that's that's my bad habit and I'm gonna fix it now? Uh, you don't iterate, well, I don't anyway. There's probably out there, people out there have written enough movies that like by the time the 10th reviewer says so-and-so about one of their movies, like, oh, I do that. Uh, for me, it's more about the note-taking process and the development of scripts that has mm -hmm. done that for me. Uh, there are some lessons, oh, I'll say this. I am now, I guess, an A-lister, which feels funny to say because I still feel scrappy and desperate all the time. I think all writers are sure they'll never work again. Um, I don't know anybody who's got a kind of golden, relaxed, made it feeling. Um, every writer I know has got a slightly spooked quality. And eventually um, you'll hit 55 and then you'll really get nervous. Like, oh God, now it's all over. Even if you're successful. Right. <laughs> Even if you stay successful that whole time. That's right. Um, the, the thing is that even having reached real success, I still find myself learning basic lessons every time out. I mean, there's a way in which every time I start a new project, it's as if I've forgotten how to do this and I have to invent writing movies from the ground up. And there are certain lessons I find I have to learn every time I encounter them. Um, you know, it's the characters stupid is sort of a, a come to Jesus moment in the middle of writing every script where I find I've gotten distracted by designing the predicament and creating the world and the armature of it, the secondary characters. And then at some point, necessity will grab me by the face and make me realize that the internal journey of your hero is everything. These characters and their relationships are everything. Um, I have to learn it like an idiot every single time out. Um, and there are a lot of things like that. I, I, I constantly feel like I'm learning my craft at the most basic level, uh, no matter how long I've been doing it or no matter how successfully I seem to be practicing it. I am always learning dunce lessons and I think I probably always will be. I think that's kind of what art is. Mm. So do you get the joy out of it that you expected when you decided to go down this journey after you picked up that camera? Yes, phases of it. 
Um, screenwriting is filled, it's a roller coaster ride of shocking indignities and disrespect and, and being able to fly, getting to create things from whole cloth and having an army of artists take millions of other people's dollars and make them real and put them on screens. Every time that happens, even the simplest thing of getting something into prep um, and having some talented artist paint a picture based on my story and put it up on the wall. Every time it happens, I'm like a little kid on Christmas morning. Someone made a picture out of my story. Can you believe it? And then somebody goes and makes thousands of pictures of it and flashes them up on a screen real quick and they walk and talk and your story is real. Um, even the bad version of that is pretty good. Yeah, when I was in my, my brief screenwriting career, there was this movie that was horrible and it was all kinds of problems and it was, I quit during the movie and all that, but one actor did a scene of mine correctly. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got it and he did it and it was like it was like christmas it was oh my god this is this is really really good everything else was torture but that moment was like just worth it all well in the same way for every writer there will be times you have to take notes you don't want to take there will be times you find out your movie's not going to get made ever after everybody thought it was uh there will be times you're gonna get fired and rewritten and you won't think the rewrite's good or maybe you'll think it's even better and is that harder to take those are all difficult moments, but there's always that time when you get to write your draft. And like part of the secret of this thing is that you have to find your way to this space. Even when you're doing a rewrite you didn't want to do or taking notes that you think are not the right notes, you're only going to do good work if you fall in love with that story anyway. And so you have to find your way back to that first draft space, blank page, anything you want. What feels good to write? What's the story calling to you to do. And you get into that toy box of a first draft. And if you can get there again in a rewrite, then that's the way. You fall in love. You let your inner moviegoer drive. You start munching popcorn and you spin a yarn. That feels great. It feels great every time. And it is easily worth all the bumps and bruises of the rest of this profession. Do you know a lot of other screenwriters who are as rational as you? Uh, yes, actually. Um, I know some kooky ones, but they are by and large a fairly grounded bunch. I think you have to be to get through the travails. Um, the industry will weed you out pretty quickly, but it's, it's tricky. It, it does point to a part of the art that people talk about less. And, and yet is critical, completely 100% critical. Absolutely. Anything. Everyone's talking all the time about structure, about formatting on the screenplay page, um, <laughs> about character and saving cats. Um, but one of the most important aspects of this work is maintaining morale, is maintaining your emotional hygiene, just making sure that you are happy, that you are still in touch with your muse, that you are still available as a seeker to go find a great story. Basically, keeping your inner child healthy and well is an essential part of this craft. Um, and it's one that is not addressed very much in screenwriting books and screenwriting forums, but I think is as essential as any other part of this work. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I've always, I went to film school and all that. And I, I had one teacher, I think in the course of four years who actually told the truth about the industry. And it was a guy who had been a TV producer for many years. And it was like, he didn't give a damn. But it's, it's very rare 
even like in, you know, graduate courses and things where you get down to the real nitty gritty of, and this is what the life is. Right. As opposed to, you know, like you say, formatting and, and second act and whatever. Everybody wants to skip to the end. I remember way back in the day, my first approach to fiction was going to be short fiction. I was going to write short stories. And back then, it was pre-internet, um, there were these books, the writer's market books that had like every little journal that published short stories and every magazine that published them. And invariably, what you get from aspiring writers is a focus on this book. Like, where am I going to sell my short stories? And they go buy the book and they dream about their career and they flip through all the things looking for the best. They haven't written the stories. They didn't write the stories yet. That's the bit that matters. But people get hung up on that book. Um, and screenwriting has its own version of that, where it's very easy as an aspiring screenwriter uh, to get stars in your eyes, think about the future and get caught up about the life you're going to lead, movies you're going to make, parties you'll go to, stars you'll know. Uh, but first, you got to write the stories. And to write the stories, you have to stop thinking about all of that and love your story. Mm. And that's the Zen of it. You know, love your story and just stay here with it and make sure your inner child's got his teeth into it. So we need to wrap it up. I'm curious, how long did you, have you worked on the Dune 2 screenplay? Have you been on it for six months or a year? Or did you start uh, writing the minute you were doing the leather one? It's a ping pong match because Denis is writing it also. Um, so he's done a bunch of work. I've done some work and all of that has been heavily punctuated by the overwhelming reception of Dune part one, um, which has kept me incredibly busy uh, supporting the film through this award season and just doing press and talking about it, uh, which is kind of unforeseen full-time job that he's had to do while developing Dune two. Um, so I expect- I, I saw him on Jimmy Fallon, whatever night it was. I was like, what is the need doing <laughs> Jimmy Fallon? The, the man does not sleep right now. He's so gracious about it and yeah. he's so eloquent all the time. My, my, my hat is off to him. Uh, but you know, he's taking production meetings at eight in the morning and then doing seven hours of press and then more and then you know notes. So I think um, to the extent that more script work needs to be done, we'll get, our, get into it hammer and tongs come April. Uh, when this silly season has passed. But when did you start, actually? Oh, I mean, I wrote treatment for it a couple of years ago now. So uh, we kind of part of the other process? Yeah, it was integrated with the process of writing part one. Um, because you need to know if there are seeds you need to plant in that first movie that will bear fruit in the second. Um, so there are ways in which the structure and content of part two was part of the living discussion around part one the entire time. Yeah. I've never been working and, on it. And are you going to be the showrunner on the Dune series or do you know or? I will not. I helped to set that up. Um, but in the end, we've also been talking about other cinematic projects, which I'm not at liberty to talk about yet. Um, and I've been focused on those. And so the TV effort is proceeding at this point without me. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. <laughs> I, it's, it is a it is one of those films that uh, there's so much about getting it made and then getting it out in the theaters or not getting it into the theaters and all, the, all the drama. And uh, the response has been overwhelming, I'd say, in a positive way. It's been oh, it's a delight. And in particular, I'm so happy to see so many departments being acknowledged on the film, uh, because as proud as I am of the writing work on a script, uh, I would not be in sort of awards contention 
were it not for the quality of the work that every other artist did. Without that score, without that cinematography, without that production design, those costumes and makeup, those performances, that casting, I mean, every piece of it, the work of Denis Villeneuve, overarching everything, um, not one of us would be here without all of us. Um, and that's been the delight, that because of the magnetic power of Dune as a property and Denis as an auteur, um, an army of gifted artists rallied to him and made the movie together. And just getting to participate in that is humbling and just an honor I'll never live over, never yeah. live down. Well, Denis' acceleration into what he's become is really quite remarkable. I mean, Incendies is a beautiful movie, but it's not, you know, obviously not the size of the movie since then. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you would never have thought of him for Dune. No, it's true. He was making dark little indies yeah smart and convoluted and staring into the you know the heart of darkness inside the human condition and then yeah he's pivoted into these extraordinary epics and and yet you can still feel the continuity with his earlier work yes it still has those four things you mentioned and that it also has this 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 landscape that is singularly his that's right it's not there aren't other directors who would do i mean somebody else could make a movie but nobody else would bring quite what denis brings to them you know arrival being another case where you know the scale and the intimacy of it at the same time is one of the things that's remarkable, so. Exactly right. Well, thank you for your time and uh, good luck getting to July. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking. Your questions are great. I really appreciate it. Well, fun for me too. Right. <laughs> Have a great, uh, well, you're gonna, you're gonna be stuck. You're, you're in the East Coast or the West Coast? You're in the West Coast. I'm, I'm in, back in LA now. So you just have to drive to the, to the theater. That's right, relatively easy. <laughs> just a little tuxedo action and you're on your way. Just so. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.